So this is a final panel. This is kind of a marathon conference, so after this we wine and dine you. Uh, so you can look forward to that, I hope. Uh, but the, you should also look forward to this panel. We've got an excellent panel. And um, our moderator, Peter Coy, who's with the uh, Bloomberg Business Week, uh, writes some very good columns, is uh, going to start things off. And uh, I'll let Peter uh, take over. Thank you very much, everybody. I think this is a great panel. It's uh, a little more blue sky than some of the others. So it's, it's fun. It's, I think it's a great way to end the day. Uh, We've gone from the nuts and bolts, and now we're going to think really big. And we have four great people who are all well qualified to lead you on an interesting adventure. And I'm not going to give long introductions because uh, you have their bios in the program, and you probably know them anyway. Um, so it'll, speakers will have 15 minutes each, up to 15 minutes, and then we'll go to Q&A. So um, I'll just go down the line, and uh, our first speaker will be George Selgin, Director for the Center for Monetary and Financial Alternatives here at Cato. Thank you, Peter. Thank you all. Uh, uh, well, this is, uh, this is the time in the, the conference where the CMFA lets its hair down. And... Uh, tells you a little bit about what it really thinks, uh, at least uh, uh, insofar as I can count myself as an accurate representative of the views, not just my own, but of my colleagues. Uh, we've heard a lot in the last session, particularly, about uh, what, what we might do to try and legitimize central banks' vast powers. And uh, as I said in introducing Sir Paul, I think that's a perfectly uh, important objective. But what I want to talk about is how we can try to reduce those powers so that we don't have such a difficult legitimizing challenge before us. Because after all, what makes it problematic, what makes the powers of central banks problematic is that they are so vast. If they weren't, I don't suppose that we'd be uh, so worried about uh, legitimizing or defending them. And in particular, I want to talk about whether and to what extent we can delegate more of the powers that we presently assign to central banks to the private sector. Well, you kind of knew that was coming, didn't you? <laughs> uh, now, We've got two kinds of people in the audience in any Cato conference. Uh, we have our share of, of uh, uh, Cato fans, libertarians, and uh, when you ask that question of them, can we delegate more power to the private sector, the answer is always sure. No, they don't say delegate, they say we have it in the first place. Well, yeah, they say <laughs> you, 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 it's ours to begin with, what the heck have you taken it for in the first place? Fair enough, thank you, Peter. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe you should be. <laughs> but the response to that question from most other people, I'm afraid, is, are you kidding? Are you nuts? And it certainly has gotten to be more like that in the wake of the recent financial crisis. Well, what I'm going to try to, I hope, convince people of today is that uh, the libertarian view is, after all, much more correct than 
uh, many people, many of the others I mentioned think. Uh, however, it's perhaps not as correct as the libertarians think. Things get a little bit trickier than some seem to suppose. So let, let me talk about the broad question. Can markets handle money? That's, that's the broad question that we need to be answering here. And in one sense, I think the answer is definitely yes. Um, it, they can, markets can, the private sector can, when you let it. Now, it happens that there's a big myth here about to what extent we have let it. The, the view that is very uh, dismissive of the idea of giving more authority to markets, to private institutions, is a view that holds that, uh, that they have been mostly left unregulated. The private sector has been given many opportunities to, to produce and regulate money on its own, and to do so with maximum or, or at least extensive freedom, and the results have been disastrous. Hence, we have the problem of a very powerful central bank. That's not historically very accurate. Uh, the fact is that money and banks have been heavily regulated for the most part throughout history. Money is, was a, has been a nationalized institution to a very important extent from uh, ancient times. Certainly coinage has been nationalized throughout most of history and banking has in one fashion or another, in most places, been very heavily regulated uh, in the past, uh, including being prohibited in many cases. But if we look at the exceptions, if we look at cases where freedom has prevailed and private markets have been, as it were, uh, permitted to uh, provide money in some fashion, we find uh, a lot of success stories. Now, I don't have time to go over them. I've written quite a lot about some of them, but I'd just like to give you uh, some examples. Uh, let's talk about coins. Well, as I said before, it's very rare for, for the private sector to be allowed to make coins. But in those few occasions when uh, it, what coinage was left to the private sector, it didn't just produce good coins, it produced better coins than governments were producing at the same time, and darn good coins by any standard, including today's. Not only did it produce good coins, actually that's not really impressive, a coin's just a piece of metal. You'd think a factory could produce a coin as well as it can a nail or a safety pin or whatever. But uh, they also, these private coiners, came up with very uh, sophisticated and successful uh, means by which to assure an adequate supply of coinage and uh, a supply that would adapt to market circumstances. And I can tell you, you probably know it from the piles of change on your dressers, that the present system still isn't very good at that. Warehouses full of coins that nobody wants, that sort of thing. Actually, coinage is a good example of the government uh, uh, aspect of government money handling that's actually very poor. Banking. Yes, you all know the horror stories, but many of those stories, what people don't know about them is the role regulations played. I could write a book, but fortunately Charles Calamiris has a wonderful book, about the role that misguided regulations have played throughout the history of banking and how they have been not just 
a, an important cause of banking instability, crises, failures, panics. But throughout history, in some fashion, throughout most of history, the main source of banking instability, certainly that's been true in the United States. On the other hand, as Charles's research has shown and also researched by others, Lawrence White, uh, for example, on Scotland, when we track down those few systems that had very little banking regulation, like the Scottish system before 1850, or the Canadian system, depending on how, you, how much regulation you want to tolerate, that lasted until either 1914 or 1935 when they set up the Bank of Canada. Those systems had remarkable records of stability. In each case, stability that was far greater than the stability of the neighboring systems of the United States and England. The people used to know all this, by the way. How could they not be aware of it? But now, unfortunately, thanks largely to successful central banking propaganda, they don't know it anymore. I could talk about private clearinghouses. Of course, uh, these, these institutions started out private, and many of them have been nationalized. Clearinghouses uh, were, of course, originally private institutions, and some of them did tremendous work in policing banks and seeing to it that they couldn't issue too many liabilities without them being returned quickly. And this was an important source of mar market discipline. Where necessary, in the United States particularly, clearinghouses played other functions like overseeing interbank emergency lending or sometimes arranging for suspensions of payment, which were an important way of containing panic under a gold standard. By the way, speaking of containing panic, if you left it to the marketplace, you would have found many more circumstances. There were only a few, in fact, that were allowed, where banks put clauses on their contracts that would allow the banks to stop payment contractually in the event of runs when the banks were sound. And it's easy to, well, not easy, but perfectly possible to make these contracts incentive compatible so the bankers have no reason to take advantage of them if they are truly insolvent, and so on. So if you take all these bits of evidence from different places, it is not hard to imagine in a backward-looking way a, a, a free, privatized monetary system that has many of the attributes, the attributes we'd like to see in our modern monetary system, including general financial stability, a stable price level, thanks to commodity standard, of course, long run, uh, absence of severe financial crises or serious losses, though some losses were borne by creditors in all of these systems, which is one reason why the risk didn't end up running wild, because the creditors had a reason to patronize safe banks and not just whatever bank seemed to have the nicest uh, convenient facility or high interest rates. Um, now, uh, the hard part is trying to look forward to a world of greater monetary freedom. That's a lot harder because uh, there are many changes that are not so easily reversed and that we may not want to see reversed. That is, we don't want to turn the clock back. We don't want to be living in, in a banking system that's the Canadian system circa 1895. 
although <laughs> there are times when it might be better than what we have, uh, even so. But there are several, I guess you might call them evil genies that are not easily stuffed back in their bottles. And I would say the main ones are not in any particular order, the government safety net that has grown particularly uh, in the last uh, several decades, say 50 years, with uh, uh, the rise of too big to fail, but also to the extent that its coverage is high. We have the insurance, government deposit insurance, which can also lead to problems of moral hazard. We have a fiat money, which has, was the long-run outcome of the dismantling of the gold standard during the First World War, and then it's being cobbled back together in a rather un, uh, unfortunate way uh, during the 1920s in, in a way that proved perfectly unsustainable, as did Bretton Woods later on and for similar reasons. Finally, we have uh, a very bloated Fed balance sheet that we've all been talking about extensively. These things are not so easily undone. Uh, I don't want to spend time, too much time on the safety net or on the bloated Fed. I've written about uh, the last in particular, but I would like to talk about the fiat dollar. If we talk about trying to have greater monetary freedom and, and reduce the power of central banks, the difficult uh, challenge is, the question, is that of um, how to handle what is now a fiat dollar. What do we do with fiat dollars? Now, one school of libertarians uh, and not just, says, well, to heck with it, let it die. You know, bulldoze the end, Eccles building and the Fed. And, and the hope there is, to be fair, no, you know, uh, that, that, oh, well, the market will come up with new arrangements, a gold standard re will reemerge, everyone will use Bitcoin, whatever. Um, now, history shows that the free market can manage money very well if you let it. It shows that it does not show that history is very good at creating a brand new monetary system from scratch, Phoenix-like, out of the ashes of a major cataclysmic <laughs> uh, crisis. On the contrary, you'll get more government and the market will end up with a blacker eye than it's had ever before. And that's why I don't like this strategy of just, you know, Let's get rid of the Fed, let's shut it down, get rid of the FOMC, and see what happens. Anyway, um, so the alternative, of course, is to make the dollar rule-based uh, somehow. Uh, now, there's two points I'd like to make about this. First of all, uh, if we do that, we are undertaking a monetary central plan. A lot of... My critics uh, say that, uh, you know, uh, that point out, well, why we can go back to some kind of gold standard or we can do this, we could do that to uh, get the government out of managing the dollar. Well, in a sense, but you're making one more central plan. Today we have a central bank that plans the dollar again and again and again centrally. But if you decide to, say, hook it up to gold, you're... You're having one big plan that's supposed to keep working. So I just want to point that out. Uh, the gold standard did exist in the past, but that was history. It doesn't exist now. If we implement it, that's a government plan. 
The second point is whatever you do to stabilize the dollar or to manage it so that we don't have a catastrophe while we're waiting for private markets to produce alternatives is that it has to, in fact, the result has to be stable. The rule you impose on the dollar has to bring stability. Otherwise, we're right back to the problem where the state's going to get its mitts back in because those free market people have blown it again. Um, now, that leaves two fundamental choices, and I have to wrap up. One is a gold standard rule, the final government rule. The other is a quantity-based rule. And I'll just point out that the gold standard rule is extremely tricky to restore. And that's very quickly, I have other reasons. It's mainly because trust in central banks to maintain convertibility contracts is no longer what it was in the 19th century. And therefore, the new gold dollar would be subject very quickly, I believe, to speculative attacks, just as other fixed exchange rate systems have been. A currency board type gold dollar with 100% reserves, as Steve uh, knows very well, could work in theory, wouldn't be as subject to speculative attacks. But unfortunately, to get that 100% backing, you'd have to do some <coughs> rough things to the general price of gold and to prices uh, otherwise. Finally, quantity rules, that they have at least the merit of being possible in, a, in an age when trust in convertibility contracts is difficult to restore. And I'm just going to end by asserting that I think, like several other people today, the nominal GDP rule is probably the best because it's the most consistent with stability. And if the Fed would try it, it's less likely that people will complain and that we'll have them abandon that rule and perhaps abandon rules altogether as an idea for an extended period of time. Thank you very much. Next up, Bill Nelson, Executive Vice President and Chief Economist for the Bank Policy Institute. Thank you, and thank you, Jim, for the invitation to be here. I appreciate uh, the ability to participate in such a fine conference with such an esteemed group of people. So in my remarks today, I will argue that the Fed's pre-crisis monetary policy implementation framework was well-suited to a free society. I will review several of the critical decisions that drove the Fed to its current framework, in most cases because of unintended and unforeseen consequences, and I will describe how the Fed can return to conducting policy in its pre-crisis manner. Prior to the crisis, the Fed conducted monetary policy using treasury purchases and relatively small repo operations with primary dealers, the large broker-dealers authorized to do business with the Fed. Those transactions adjusted the quantity of reserve balances so as to keep the federal funds rate, the market interest rate at which commercial banks lend overnight, unsecured, to each other at near its target. The dealers were not reliant on the repo transactions with the Fed for funding, and the Fed was largely indifferent to the repo rate. Banks borrowed and lent to each other in the federal funds market, not with the Fed. Consequently, the Fed was counterparty to only a small number of relatively inconsequential financial transactions each day. During the crisis and the anemic recovery that followed, the Fed made a series of decisions that have left it with the large balance sheet implementation framework it is using today. First, 
the Fed allowed the Treasury to switch from keeping most of its cash at commercial banks to keeping all of its cash at the Fed. The Treasury initially increased its deposits at the Fed in 2008 to help the Fed finance its emergency lending. But the Treasury ended up keeping all of its cash at the Fed because doing so saved taxpayers money during the six-year period when interest rates were near zero. During that period, Treasury would have earned zero on funds kept at, commercial bank, at a commercial bank. While the Fed also paid the Treasury zero interest on its deposit, a Treasury, de a treasury deposit at the Fed reduces bank deposits at the Fed one for one. And the Fed was paying 25 basis points on commercial bank deposits. And the Fed remits all of its income to the Treasury. But market interest rates have been above zero since the end of 2015, and the Treasury continues to keep all of its cash at the Fed. Whereas before the crisis, the Treasury kept about $5 billion at the Fed, the Treasury's deposit is currently about $300 billion and highly variable. There is no record that I can find in the minutes or the transcripts of FOMC meetings of the FOMC actually making the consequential decision to allow the Treasury to keep all of its cash at the Fed when interest rates fell to zero, nor revisiting the decision when interest rates increased. For the sake of time, I'm skipping over a similar set of issues raised by the growth of the foreign repo pool, where foreign official and international account holders uh, at the Fed invest in overnight reverse repurchase agreements. That pool has grown from about $30 billion before the crisis to about $300 billion now. There is no record in the FOMC meeting minutes that I can find of a decision to allow the foreign repo pool to grow. Second. In late 2012, the Fed embarked on the Flow-Based Asset Purchase Program, also referred to as QE3 or QE Infinity. While the first two large-scale asset purchase programs were finite in size, under QE3, the Fed indicated that it would purchase $85 billion of Treasury securities and agency MBS each month until there was a substantial improvement in the outlook for the labor market, subject to periodic reviews of the efficacy and costs of the program. The staff originally projected the program to finish in June 2013 and accumulate $750 billion in assets. Some FOMC participants were skeptical, however, that the program would end so soon because the staff forecast showed no improvement in labor market conditions by the projected end date. For example, then Governor Jay Powell asked, how is this not a $1 to $2 trillion program? Where is the improvement in labor markets? FOMC participants were also skeptical that it would be feasible to use the efficacy and cost escape hatch, which would require the Fed to state that its large-scale asset purchase programs were not working. As it turned out, purchases lasted until the end of October 2014, 15 months later than originally projected. In total, the Fed bought one and three-quarter trillion dollars in MBS and Treasury securities, more than double the amount originally projected. Third. The massive size of QE3 drove the Fed to change its plans for how it would normalize its balance sheet. In June 2012, the Fed indicated that once it began to tighten monetary policy, it would sell its MBS portfolio over a period of three to five years. But selling the huge portfolio acquired under QE3 over five years would have resulted in significant projected losses for the Fed and also could have disrupted the MBS market. In September 2014, the committee adopted new principles that stated the committee would simply allow the portfolio to shrink as assets matured. Fourth, doubts about being able to raise the federal funds rate when needed due to the massive level of reserve balances in the system led the committee in 2014 to open a standing overnight reverse repurchase agreement facility. The RRP facility enabled the Fed essentially to extend its authority to pay interest on deposits from commercial banks 
to a broad set of non-banks, including Fannie, Freddie, the FHLBs, and money market mutual funds. Without the RRP facility, when the Fed decided to raise the interest rate it paid on commercial bank deposits, the increase not, might not have been transmitted one for one into the federal funds rate because the non-banks, given access to the RRP facility, might have continued to lend at low rates. When adopting the facility, the Fed indicated that it would phase it out when it was no longer needed to help control the federal funds rate. On January 30th of this year, the Federal Open Market Committee announced that it intended to continue implementing monetary policy using a framework that requires a large balance sheet and abundant reserves, the same framework it has used since the financial crisis. The principal alternative that the FOMC rejected was conducting policy with a small balance sheet and scarce reserves as it did before the crisis. The minutes of the FOMC meetings in November and December 2018 and January 2019 provide the primary advantage and disadvantage the Fed saw in an abundant reserve framework. The perceived advantage was that the framework would allow the Fed to conduct monetary policy without needing to engage in frequent open market operations. The disadvantage was that the approach required the Fed to operate with a larger balance sheet, and the FOMC indicated that it would have to reconsider its decision if the needed balance sheet was much larger than it then expected. The Fed did not specify the quantity of reserves it thought would be necessary when it made its decision in January, but a reasonable guess is about $1 trillion. The quantity of reserves that the Fed has judged to be necessary for reserves to be abundant has grown steadily over time. In April 2008, when the Federal Reserve staff first considered the possibility of operating policy with an abundant reserve framework, staff estimated that the level of reserves that would be needed, quote, might be on the order of 35 billion, but could be larger on some days, end quote. The assumption rose to 100 billion in 2016, 500 billion in 2017, and 600 billion in 2018. As I just noted, the available information suggests the FOMC judged the amount in January to be about $1 trillion, and I judge that their current estimate is about $1.5 trillion. Why has the Fed's forecast of the minimum abundant level of reserves grown steadily over time? When the Fed completed QE3, reserves peaked at $2.8 trillion, and for nearly a decade, the interest rate the Fed paid on reserve balances was above the interest rate banks could earn on other similar liquid assets. Over time, banks' demand for reserves grew as the banks and their supervisors took actions that made sense in that environment and then grew accustomed to the resulting important role of reserves in banks' liquidity management. A banker recently provided me an example of this process. When the interest rate on reserves was higher than market rates, her bank elected to hold reserves in an amount equal to its projected cash need over one week and treasury securities to cover needs over the following three weeks. When repo rates moved higher than in the interest on reserves, the, the bank considered reducing its cash holdings to its projected need over three days, still holding treasury securities to cover the remaining month. While both arrangements are consistent with liquidity requirements, supervisors would expect an explanation for the reduction in the cash, and the bank elected not to make the change. In short, the Fed's estimate of the amount of reserves needed to operate an abundant reserve framework has grown over time because the level needed has risen with the level provided. Now, just such a dynamic led the Norges Bank, the central bank of Norway, in 2010 to switch from a system with abundant reserves to a system with more scarce reserves roughly the reverse of the FOMC decision in January. When seeking comment on their decision, they indicated, quote, when Norges Bank keeps reserves relatively high for a period, it appears that banks gradually adjust to this level, 
With ever-increasing reserves in the banking system, there is a risk that Norges Bank assumes functions that should be left to the market. It is not Norges Bank's role to provide funding for banks. If a bank has a deficit of reserves towards the end of the day, banks must be able to deal with this by trading in the interbank market. And earlier today, Andy Filardo showed a nice graph that illustrated the hysteresis in the relationship between the Fed Fund's IOER spread and the level of reserves as reserves grew and then declined. Now, on October 11, 2019, in the wake of the September episode of repo market volatility, the Fed announced, let's see, the Fed announced that it was no longer letting the level of reserves decline gradually. Instead, it was raising reserve balances back up to at least the level that it provided before the money market turmoil. If the Fed decides to include a buffer to absorb future swings in reserves, it could be aiming for reserve balances of about one and three quarter trillion dollars. Despite the amount necessary reserves to be abundant, evidently needing to be considerably higher by any reasonable definition than the level probably expected when the Fed decided on its implementation framework in January, the Fed has given no indication that they are giving the pre-crisis implementation approach further consideration, as they said they would. The Fed had a monetary policy framework for a free society, but after shifting to a war footing during the financial crisis and, and the aftermath, it got caught in a cycle of ever-increasing involvement in the financial system. Whereas before the crisis, the Fed had assets and liabilities with private and foreign official institutions as counterparties equal to $66 billion, or 4% of the sum of the Fed's assets and liabilities at that time, currently the figures are $1,962 billion and 25% of the sum of assets and liabilities. So I'm going to list, to return to its pre-crisis framework, the Fed needs to take three steps. First, the Fed needs to control the volatility and reserve balances, including especially those caused by swings in the Treasury's general account. The Fed can do so using large high-frequency repos in the near term, but in the intermediate term, the Treasury needs to return to keeping its cash in the private sector. Second, Second, the Fed needs to conduct a massive re-education campaign for bankers and bank supervisors to root out any unwarranted bias toward deposits at the Fed as a liquid asset, and to install the view that collateralized daylight overdrafts and occasional discount window borrowing are appropriate. And third, the Fed needs to restart the gradual decline in its portfolio of securities. The resulting upward pressure on short-term interest rates relative to the IOER rate will lead banks to economize on their holdings of reserve balances. Now, these steps will promote a virtuous cycle. Reduced volatility of reserves will allow the Fed to shrink with less risk of turmoil in money markets. Greater willingness to allow banks to substitute treasuries for reserve balances for purposes of meeting liquidity requirements will allow the Fed to shrink further and also reduce risk of money market volatility. The increased opportunity costs of keeping deposits at the Fed will lead banks to find alternatives and supervisors to be more comfortable with those alternatives. Now, eventually, once money market rates, as well as the FOMC target for money market rates, are well above the interest rate the Fed pays on deposits, the Fed will have returned to conducting monetary policy in essentially its pre-crisis manner. The Fed funds market will recover as banks again seek to economize on their end-of-day balances at the Fed. The Fed will be able to close the standing reverse repurchase agreement facility. And the marginal transaction in the market the FOMC is targeting will again be between two banks rather than between a bank and the Fed. Thank you. And just for those of you who may not recognize this, this is the 
angel on the top of uh, Castle St. Angelo in Rome, which was, it's the angel of death sheathing its sword, and it was put up in celebration of the end of the, of the black, of one of the plagues that, in the sixth century. So this, I thought it's an appropriate symbol for that. <laughs> Thank you very much. Our next speaker is Will Luther, Assistant Professor of Economics at Florida Atlantic University, Director of the Sound Money Project, the American Institute for Economic Research. Thank you, Jim and, and Cato, for inviting me today. I think in conversations like these, sometimes there's a tendency to put the cart before the horse. Uh, considering what um, a monetary system would be best for a free society requires some framework for evaluating the available alternatives. So what I want to do today is make that explicit. Uh, so let's get back to basics. Um, in what follows, I will offer four principles for a base money regime. Now, some of you might be wondering why I'm limiting attention to base or outside money. After all, most of the money that's used throughout the world is created inside the banking system. In the United States, for example, the M2 money stock, less the currency component, is nearly $13.5 trillion. The monetary base is only around $3.1 trillion. The difference is even greater in other countries where financial institutions are not encouraged to stockpile so many reserves and the currency circulates to a much uh, lesser extent beyond the borders of the issuing country or currency area. The claims that are issued by banks are redeemable claims. They're redeemable for base money. They derive their value from the underlying asset. And optimizing banks expand and contract their loans and deposits as the supply of base money expands and contracts. If bank-issued money is the ship, base money is the rudder. I won't bury the lead. Uh, I maintain that an ideal base money is stable in the long run, demand elastic in the short run, global, and incentive compatible. So let me say a bit about each. In the long run, inflation is a monetary phenomenon. So asking how the money supply should be governed in the long run is akin to asking what the optimal rate of inflation is. There are uh, essentially three views in the literature. The first is that the optimal inflation rate is zero. The second is that it's slightly negative. The third is that it's slightly positive. You might say that economists <laughs> like to cover our bases. <laughs> Advocates of the first view, including the late Alan Meltzer, they typically maintain that the general price level is a numeraire, and so any costs incurred to change the numeraire are unwarranted. Some also note that since capital gains are subject, since nominal capital gains are subject to tax, inflation results in costly distortions in saving and investment. Still others stress the salience of zero inflation, which might reduce uncertainty about price level drift. The second view maintains that inflation should be slightly negative. This view is usually credited to Milton Friedman, and it's typically justified on the grounds that individuals will hold insufficient cash balances when the real rate of return on currency is lower than the real rate of return on uh, bonds of similar risk and duration. If individuals don't hold enough cash, they'll have to incur costs of managing smaller cash balances, and some transactions will go unrealized. With a mild expected deflation, however, the currency yields a positive real rate of return, and everyone holds enough cash to make the desired transactions. The third view remains that, uh, maintains that some low but positive rate of inflation is desirable. 
This view, as put forward by George Akerlof, is usually justified on the grounds of lubricating labor markets, that is, enabling employees to accept a lower real wage without enduring the psychic costs of seeing the amount on their paychecks decrease, enabling employers to offer lower real wages without reducing morale and productivity, and so on and so forth. Others in this group more or less accept the first view, but worry that conventional measures overestimate inflation. And some more recent studies yield a positive optimal rate of inflation on the grounds of, avoid, uh, of avoiding the zero lower bound or compensating for financial frictions. Now, this provides a useful starting point, but it would be uh, more useful still to be precise about the range of optimal inflation rates advanced by those working in the field and the extent to which they accept those estimates. A recent survey of the literature by Anthony Dirks allows for both. So here's a graph of the optimal inflation rate found in the literature uh, uh, over time. Each circle corresponds to a publication, and the size of the circle reflects the number of times it's been cited by other papers. So what's the consensus view? Most papers, and the most cited papers, recommend an inflation rate around 0%. The average inflation rate across all 159 papers is 0.03%. Many papers find that a slightly negative rate of inflation is desirable. Some papers, most of which have been published in the last 10 years, find that a slightly positive rate of inflation is ideal. Only 10 papers, 6.29%, recommend inflation rate in excess of 4%. Only one paper, 0.63%, recommends an inflation rate below minus 4%. So taken together, the consensus view holds that the absolute rate of money growth should be low over the long run. The optimal inflation rate is almost certainly between minus 4% and plus 4% and probably much closer to zero. So the optimal rate of base money growth should be consistent with that outcome. Having considered how the supply of base money should be governed over the long run, I'll now turn to the short run. And I maintain that the ideal base money is demand elastic. So it expands and contracts to offset changes in the demand to hold money. The argument is straightforward. An increase in money demand causes a costly downward adjustment of prices with no offsetting benefit since the prices comprising the initial price level conveyed information about the relative scarcity of goods and services just as well as the prices comprising the subsequent price level. Likewise, a decrease in money demand causes a costly upward adjustment of prices with no offsetting benefit. When prices are slow to adjust, the case for a demand elastic supply is even stronger. An increase in money demand causes nominal spending to fall, leading some of us toiling away to toil a little less. Likewise, a decrease in money demand fools some of us into producing more than we would if we were fully informed. By offsetting shocks to money demand, a, a demand elastic base money regime would allow us to avoid these costs, freeing up resources to produce other valuable goods and services. Should the supply of money adjust in response to real supply shocks, be they natural like a hurricane or unnatural like a trade war? I say no for two reasons. First, real shocks tend to be concentrated on a particular subset of markets. Allowing the price level to adjust would require price adjustments only in those markets affected. Maintaining the initial price level by adjusting the money supply in contrast would require changing all prices, a much costlier proposition. 
Second, since real shocks tend to be concentrated on a particular subset of markets, information concerning the need to adjust prices tends to be concentrated on those markets as well. And the relevant actors in those markets have an incentive to change their bidding and asking prices accordingly. So prices will tend to be less sticky in those markets where adjustments need to be made following a real shock. And by requiring price adjustments in other markets, adjusting the money supply in response to a real shock is likely to induce over or underproduction in those other markets where it's easier to be fooled when one encounters the signal extraction problem. Number three, an ideal base money is global. Money is an institutional technology that promotes trade. It enables users to overcome the difficulties of barter when trust is insufficient at a relatively low information cost. When considering the desirability of alternative base money regimes then, one should not forget the extent to which those monies facilitate exchange. If facilitating exchange were the only issue, the ideal base money would circulate as widely as possible. A common currency reduces information costs by making cross-border comparisons less onerous. It reduces transaction costs by eliminating the need to convert prices or exchange one money for another before transacting. And it reduces the riskiness of cross-border production plans since under a common currency, such plans are not subject to exchange rate risk. As a result, a common currency promotes exchange both directly by lowering the cost of exchange and indirectly by increasing productivity. Now, the standard view maintains that facilitating exchange is not the only issue uh, since expanding the domain of base money also expands the domain of monetary policy, or more generally, the mechanism to govern the, govern the supply of base money. A money circulating over the most expansive region uh, possible cannot have a money supply mechanism tailored to the various constituent regions. If the gains from additional exchanges made possible by a common currency are diminishing, while the losses from a well-tailored common money supply mechanism are increasing, the optimal currency area might be smaller than the maximum currency area. Contrary to chalkboard abstractions, nominal shocks do not hit all people in a given region equally. A general increase in the demand to hold money, for example, results from the specific increases of specific people in specific places, which almost certainly vary by degree. Each person demanding more money will have a specific willingness to pay for that money, and the financial system will tend to allocate the available funds to the highest bidder. Hence, a general increase in the supply of money to offset a general increase in money demand will tend to channel funds to specific people demanding more money. A common currency area can have but one money supply mechanism. However, that money supply mechanism gets tailored to the needs of the constituent regions through the financial system. What about regional real shocks? Price level differences between regions that are consistent with real underlying fundamentals are relative price differences. They convey important information about relative scarcity and hence should not be seen as a problem. The cost of living is lower in Montgomery, Alabama than it is in New York City. And uh, the, the catch, though, is that you would have to live in Montgomery in order to get the discount. And most New Yorkers, it seems, don't think that discount worthwhile. 
Likewise, changes in the real underlying fundamentals should be reflected by changes in regional price levels. If there's a drought in Nebraska, for example, farmers in Nebraska will produce less corn, prices will, will rise in Nebraska more so than elsewhere, and there's nothing that changing the supply of money can do to improve matters since Nebraska really does have less purchasing power. They're just not as productive as they would have been in the absence of a drought. Finally, number four, the ideal base money regime is incentive compatible. A regime is incentive compat compatible if and only if it's in the interest of the relevant actors to carry out the inner workings of the regime as described. If a regime is not incentive compatible, there's little reason to expect that the regime will behave as described, and it's also less likely to persist. Adhering to the first three principles identified here is only sufficient to capture a portion of the available benefits. Capturing all of the benefits requires an observable, credible commitment to those principles. And a commitment is only credible if it's incentive compatible. Consider the benefits that come from uh, long-run stability. Credibly committing to such a supply mechanism anchors expectations, enables long-term contracting, and thereby promotes economic growth. If the commitment's not credible, long-term contracting is riskier. Some will incur costs to mitigate that risk, perhaps by acquiring additional information or switching from projects that, that require long-term contracts to more costly short-term alternatives. And these costs divert resources from other productive uses. The benefits of a global monetary regime similarly depend on the extent to which it's incentive compatible. Recall that one of the benefits of a global monetary regime is the reduction in exchange rate risk. However, if such a regime is not incentive compatible, those considering cross-border production plans must consider the risk that exchange rate risk will become an issue over the relevant time horizon, perhaps because the regime is abandoned or otherwise devolves into some riskier alternative. In other words, some of the potential benefits of a global regime will go unrealized if that regime is not incentive compatible. So let's recap. I've offered four principles for a base money regime. In the long run, it should be stable, yielding an inflation rate of around 0%. In the short run, it should expand and contract to accommodate changes in money demand. It should be global, thereby facilitating trade to the maximum extent possible. And finally, it should be incentive compatible so that the expectations-based benefits uh, of the three preceding principles can be realized. Now, the available real-world alternatives fall short of the ideal on one or more of these margins. For example, the historical experience with government-issued fiat monies suggests they are far from stable. They've yielded significantly higher rates of inflation than commodity money regimes. Commodity monies, however, have historically, uh, have historically been slow to adjust in the short run. Cryptocurrencies like Bitcoin have the potential to facilitate exchange well beyond the national borders uh, without the international coordination required by traditional monetary unions. However, their supplies are often even more rigid than traditional commodity monies. Even though the available real-world alternatives fall short of the ideal, the four principles I've outlined provide a useful starting point for evaluating alternatives. We're in a world of second or third or fourth best and must consider the relevant trade-offs. But without a clear ideal in mind, such comparisons would be impossible.
presenter is Steve Hankey, Professor of Applied Economics at Johns Hopkins University. Thank you, Peter. I always love to bat cleanup, especially when my team's way ahead. And in that regard, I, I think we should really give Jim Dorn a hand right now for putting together a great conference. <laughs> I've been to a number of the monetary conferences, Jim, and this one really has been fabulous. Uh, I, I've thoroughly enjoyed it, first class. Congratulations. Uh, monetary instability poses a threat to free societies. Money instability is a source of currency crashes, banking crises, inflation surges, and inflation plunges, economic booms and busts. And all of these ills are always followed by policy proposals and changes that constrain or destroy liberties and freedom. That brings me to Carl Schiller, and Carl Schiller's mantra. Schiller was the Minister of Finance in Germany, West Germany, 1966 to 72. He said, stability might not be everything, but without stability, everything is nothing. Well, Schiller's mantra is my mantra too. I offer three regime changes that would enhance stability in what Jack Delorosier terms an international monetary anti-system that we live in today. The first proposal is a formal, if loose, linkage between the two most important currencies in the world, the US dollar and the euro. The second is a mothballing of at least 100 central banks and replacing those with currency board systems. And a third is to green light private currency board systems, uh, such as, for example, Libra, which is in, in effect uh, a, a currency board system, the proposal is. So on the dollar-euro linkage, the first point, the first of the three, uh, this over the years, Bob Mundell convinced me that the most important price in the world is the dollar-euro exchange rate. And the key to international stability is to have stability of that rate at the center. If you just look at what happened between July and November of 2008, you'll get some idea of, of what Mundell uh, was stressing. The greenback against the euro soared by almost 25%. Gold plunged by 22%. Oil completely collapsed down 57%. The CPI, we've been talking about inter, uh, CPI today, uh, and the CPI in July of 2008 reached 5.6% per year, uh, way above than any numbers we've been talking about today. But by July of 2009, we were in an outright deflation with the annual 
CPI contracting at 2.1%. So we had a stunning, in a, in a year, a stunning 7.7 percentage point swing in the CPI. <laughs> Talk about instability. Now, what did this bring? All this instability that the uh, was being focused on, particularly by Mundell. Mundell was really the only one who picked up and focused on this as a good supply sider, uh, focusing on prices and changes in prices. This brought forth a, a cascade of policy responses. Most of them, from a freedom or liberty perspective, were bad, as, as is always the case when you have some sort of monetary instability creating some kind of crisis, you, you have a response, and the response is, in general, bad news for liberty. In fact, the instability that I just reviewed of the 2008-2009 period, uh, it, it really provides a backdrop for uh, many of the policies that are being debated in the context of the 2020 presidential election in the United States. So what to do to stabilize? Keep the exchange rate between the dollar and the euro between 120 and 140, a loose linkage. If the euro is weak, uh, that is below, if the rate is below 120, the US Treasury would, would buy euros. And in that context, we've had the euro dollar exchange rate uh, since 1999, and we, we would have we been, in that case, the euro week between 99 and 2003, and 2014 to the present period. So in all those periods of time, in the, in the hypothetical, the, the Treasury would be buying. If, on the other hand, the dollar was weak, over 140, uh, the ECB would be buying and intervening, uh, loosening up in short, and that would have covered the 2007 to 2011 period for that exchange rate. As for the, so, so that's the center. Keep, keep the dollar-euro exchange rate stable. Now, what about mothballing central banks? Well, central banks, it turns out, are, are relatively new institutional arrangements. In 1900, there were 18 central banks. In 1940, there, it had crept up to 40, and today we have nearly 200 central banks. So it's, it's a little bit like rabbits. Uh, you know, they, these things really have gotten, gotten going and going strong. The results have been poor to disastrous. Uh, the policies have been, in many cases, pro-cyclical. We've had higher inflation and, in some cases, hyperinflations. Currency crises more frequent. Banking crises more frequent. Uh, and, 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 in fact, with central banking, we have big facilitators of soft budget constraints on the fiscal affairs of countries and, of course, debt levels are much higher. We've had occasional debt crises and debt defaults. This wasn't always the case, of course. As Sir John Hicks wrote, prior to central bank, the central bank surge, the financial cycle, and to quote Hicks, was 
almost disappearing. So with central banks, of course, we have instability, more instability than we had in the past. Uh, at, at least 100 of these central banks, in my view, should be mothballed and put in museums. Currency boards should replace them. Again, referring to Hicks and to quote him, he said, on strict Ricardian principles, there should have been no need for central banks. A currency board working on a rule should have been enough, end quote. So what is a currency board? It's an institution that's cloning some sort of anchor currency, or, or it could be a commodity like gold. It clones them by requiring 100% reserves of the issue of currency from the currency board. Uh, that currency that's issued by the board trades at a fixed exchange rate, fully convertible uh, with the anchor. Uh, there is no monetary policy, no monetary policy with a currency board. It has a fixed, e e fixed exchange rate, it has an exchange rate policy, but no monetary policy. Its balance sheet is simple. On the asset side, it has all foreign exchange or anchor, uh, or if there are any net domestic assets of any kind, they're frozen, and of course the liabilities or whatever they're issuing. It provides, the key thing, a hard budget constraint because it can't issue credit to the fiscal authorities. The results have been, number one, bottom line, no failures of, of currency boards. Uh, they produce lower inflation than comparable central banks, faster growth rates than comparable central banks, smaller fiscal deficits, smaller debt, and a great deal more stability. We've had over 70 currency boards, and if they were so great, why don't we have them now? Well, this was a post, the, the, the getting rid of currency boards occurred after the Second World War, and it occurred for really three reasons, I think. One, Keynesian economics was really coming into vogue, and the idea that we could have counter-cyclical fine-tuning, and, and we needed a central bank to do that. The second reason for their destruction was, was the fact that all colonial institutions, and most currency boards at that time were colonial institutions, uh, were trashed with independence of the colonies. And the third thing is that you had the Bretton Woods Agreement and the Bretton Woods Institutions, the IMF in particular, but also the World Bank, and new central banks provided jobs for the boys. Need a lot of technical assistance if you're setting up a, a new central bank and, and trying to figure out how to run it. So currency boards out, and then we had the fall of communism, and we, we had some, a little resurgence, and, and uh, Kurt Schuller and I were involved. We got Warren Coates was involved in, in establishing currency boards. We had new ones put in in Estonia, Lithuania, Bulgaria, and Bosnia-Herzegovina. Uh, and I, I'm op optimistic that we're going to have a resurgence now. 
I, I, it had kind of died down. And, and now, just today, Kurt Schuler and I discovered that our book is coming out today in Turkey. And what's the book? A, it's a book that advocates a gold-backed currency board for Turkey and, and other, other places, not necessarily Turkey alone. But the gold-backed currency board has a great advantage in the sense that the, no sovereign is issuing gold. So it's attractive in places like Iran, Russia, Turkey, that, that, that want to get away from the dollar, out of the dollar system. Another reason for optimism is my third leg of my three-point proposal, and that would be to green light private currency boards. And as it turns out, uh, Schuler and I wrote a book in 1994. I, I thought we'd propose something like Libra, <laughs> and we actually wrote a draft monetary constitution for a currency, private currency board, Swiss-based reserves in Switzerland, and all, all, all of those things. And it turns out, if you read the white paper that behind Libra, they actually mention two words in there, currency boards. So the, the Libra idea is, is, in fact, a currency board or would be a currency board. The problem is, as Steve Forbes points out in his November 30th column in Forbes, it's all the, 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 the stalling and slowdown of Libra and problems that we read about, uh, uh, abandonment of sponsors almost by the day, it's all associated with the fact that cryptocurrencies are viewed by central banks as threats, and private currency <laughs> boards are, are a threat to central banks. So that's why the stonewalling is occurring. Well, being a threat is not a problem for me. I think bring on the threats because the threats promise more stability and more enhancement of freedoms and liberty. With that, I'll see her. Well, did I make it? You, you're oh. under. You oh, keep gee. talking. Hey, keep hey, talking. I, I got a minute left. <laughs> oh, is that thank you. you? Yeah, thank I, you. Thank, thank you very much. Uh, I'm going to ask just one question to kick things off, but I really want to have most of the uh, conversation be between you guys and the audience. So. I'm sensitized to this because I'm reading a new book called The Narrow Corridor by Daron Echemelu of MIT and James Robinson of Harvard, um, a successor to the book, Why Nations Fail. And it gets into the topic of, you know, meet the new boss, same as the old boss. So the idea that you throw off one oppressor and another comes to replace that oppressor. And the question is, if you get rid of your central bank, um, what replaces it? And I'm thinking, Steve, maybe you want to take the first crack at this. If the, uh, a nation adopts a currency board, then it, in a sense, is adopting the monetary policy of the country, the central bank of the country whose currency it's connected to. So you're losing, again, throwing off one set of shackles and putting on another. What about that? 
Well, the the, re, the reason that it's superior is that what you have is usually a, a, a system that destabilizes the country, yeah. produces more inflation. It provides no hard. The the key the key thing, it, working on these currency boards now for twenty years or so, as Kurt and I've been doing. Uh, actually, I think it's more like thirty years. But in, in any case, it, the hard budget constraint. The, the, Inflation always comes, in fact, from what? <laughs> from it's always a monetary phenomenon. But why? Why does it exist? Why do you have a hyperinflation? And the only one in the world in Venezuela right now is because the central bank. There, there are no financing possibilities for the government except to run to the central bank and print money. That's that's how you get a hyperinflation. Right. That's how you get inflation. It's always comes from the fisc. And, and the central bank financing the fist. So you have to put in these countries, and I, uh, the 100 countries, by the way, we're not talking about the ECB or the Fed or things like right. that. We're talking about the, uh, out in the periphery. And, and you have to put a hard budget constraint in the system. And even a place like Bulgaria that has very weak institutions, by the way, uh, what happened? We put it, they had a hyperinflation. 242% per month. We put a uh, currency board in. The, uh, it, within one month, the nominal interest rates were in single digits. Yeah. I mean, it, it just crushed the thing immediately. It stayed in place, and, the, and it works very well because of the hard budget constraint. No matter whether you have a socialist government or a conservative government, the, the fiscal deficit is very small. Their debt level is very small okay. in Bulgaria. And, and let me, let right. me just, uh, yeah. I'm taking, now I'm going to take my minute that I. All right, good. Uh, <laughs> the, the, the key thing, the key thing, and, and the reason that I'm arguing that they should not get rid of the LEV, which is a clone of the euro, is because of moral hazard. If they join the Eurozone, it'll be like Greece. They, 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 the Bulgarian mentality is, <laughs> Brussels will bail us out. We, we can screw up the fisc as much as we want to yeah. and eventually get bailed out. They can't do that if they have a currency board Got because it. They, no yeah. moral hazard. Perfect. Um, I guess what I was talking about, a, a country like Venezuela could clearly benefit from a currency board but, uh, and you said you're excluding the ECB, and yet you also favor the, a linkage between the dollar and the euro. And, and Will uh, talks about how the ideal currency is global. So uh, there is a sense, though, that you, you, you give up something um, when you um, tie yourself to a single currency. And that goes back to Mundell and his optimal currency area topic. Maybe, maybe Will can jump in on that first. Yes, yeah, so I, I think there are two issues here. Right? So first uh, is this really an old question in, in political science, right? Um, how is it that a sovereign that's capable of shackling its own hands, uh, how can we prevent it from unshackling its own hands, right? If it has the power to shackle, it has the power to unshackle. And yet most of us uh, find it beneficial at times to impose rules on ourselves, rules that we are capable of breaking, but rules that bind to some extent. You know, when you tell your friends you're going on a diet, it's a little harder to break. Um, when, you, when you get married in front of your friends and family, it's a little costlier to end that relationship. Mm. It's not that you can't break those commitments. It's that um, it's a little costlier. And so uh, those things yeah. uh, uh, bind. And George? You know, I, I don't have, I, I don't have a, 
an answer to the question of how you get uh, governments to to give up power, and not an easy one. But I think that that a big part of this is convincing people uh, to abandon old uh, misconceptions that uh, allow governments to have not only have uh, extensive monetary powers, but in many cases to abuse them uh, very uh, uh, severely. One of the myths that's really fundamental is the whole notion of m monetary sovereignty, understood to mean that, uh, that uh, a country isn't quite, its government isn't quite sovereign if it doesn't have its own money. That should go, that should be tossed into the garbage can of history along with the idea that every country needs to have its own telecommunications, uh, nationalized telecommunications. But, but just elaborate on that. Why yeah. is it not a indication of sovereignty? The only reason it's an indication of sovereignty is because, the only reason we think it is, mm -hmm. is because historically governments have insisted on monopolizing money and, and, uh, and have often had uh, draconian penalties when anyone tried to issue uh, money. We know that was true for many centuries. But uh, they, they monopolized money for the same reasons that they monopolized soap at one time, and they monopolized salt, etc., for purely fiscal reasons. Now, they retain the strongest incentive to monopolize money because it is far more lucrative monopoly than those others. The, but the education of the public uh, is, is crucial here to convince people that, particularly if you've got a central bank that's abusive, that it isn't essential that your country should have its own uh, distinct national money. And it is certainly uh, uh, possible to import your money or import your po monetary policy from elsewhere the same way you import your uh, airplanes from elsewhere. So that's part of the education that's important. And I'll just make one other quick point. The other thing that has to be stressed, and here economists really could use a little more teaching, is that we shouldn't judge the desirability of an independent central bank strictly in blackboard terms. Anybody can talk about an ideal central bank that does just the right thing on the blackboard. But what people in Venezuela have to consider, and plenty of other countries that aren't quite as badly off, is what, if what is their own central bank like, or what would it be like to have a central bank there, given the political circumstances? How does that compare to other alternatives? Currency boards are very flawed alternatives, aren't they, Steve? They're flawed, right? They're not perfect. Yeah, they're not perfect. And but it's a matter. Particularly, it's particularly a matter, it depends yeah. on what the anchor is that yeah. you've got. But yeah. uh, Your choice is a flawed currency board for yeah. Venezuela or a Venezuelan central bank. Well, sure. I think, the, I think the average person on the street gets this idea about monetary sovereignty already. If you look at Argentina, there are twice as many people in Argentina as in Chile, and yet they hold half as much money. The typical Argentine has already said, I don't care too much about monetary sovereignty. Yeah, this, the, the point is consumer sovereignty. That, that's, right. that's the, that's the, the issue be. that we're really talking about is consumer sovereignty, and, and you have to eliminate all, all the... And, if, and, and to an, back to you, Peter, it, yeah. it answers your question exactly. Huh? If you let people freely choose what they want, they're they're not going to be choosing these junk currencies, sure. yeah. and and you would have no national currency because no one would want the stuff. Yeah, um, 
Bill, did you want to weigh in or should I go to the audience for a uh, question? Yeah. All right. So uh, I show of hands, please. I'll take one right there in the middle. Wait for the microphone, please. Hi, Min Arbon, Bureau of Labor Statistics. Uh, what is the difference, um, Professor Hankey, if you will, uh, between dollarization and a currency board? And it comes to my mind, I, I grew up in Panama, which is a dollarized economy, and it's one of the most stable uh, economies in Latin America by far. In Argentina, where I have relatives, they are not the jury, but de facto dollarized. You know, you go in the in a corner, there's people selling dollars, selling dollars because of the terrible uh, economic situation and the history, you know, between. The, the only so. difference really, there, there are actually 33 countries that are dollarized, meaning they don't have a domestic currency uh, uh, at all, but are using some kind of foreign currency. The, the only difference is, with, with a currency board, an orthodox currency board, you have a clone of, of some other currency. With dollarization, you, you don't have the clone. You've got the real deal, and that's it. Now, what's the difference? It's, it's seniorage, because if you have a currency board, you're issuing a liability that pays no interest, and you have 100% reserves of some anchor backing it up, so you're, you're always making a profit. So that, that's actually the only real difference. Uh, you get the hard budget constraint. All, everything else is actually exactly yeah. the same. Yeah. Okay, more questions or um, remarks? Um, okay, right up here in the front, please. Wait, sir. Yeah, just right here, yeah. If we go back to this discussion of base money, uh, and we try to extrapolate what Professor Hanke mentioned about Libra, do you see this new world where M2 starts converging to M0? What does this mean for liquidity <coughs> in a cross-border sense? If this actually happens in scale, which some people think will happen, whether Libra happens out of Switzerland or something like Libra. This, this issue about having your counterparty as either, a, either Libra or a central bank, how do you see the liquidity change? Oh, uh, by the way, I forgot. I was supposed to ask people to give their name and affiliation. This is Manmohan Singh just spoke. And I, could you just say your name uh, back there? I know you're... You don't have the mic. Yeah, he did say he was from the he, bureau. He did. He yeah. did say. Got it. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, because it because it's being recorded, so for posterity, you know, for centuries from now, people will still be reviewing this. Like the video. FOMC minutes, <laughs> you know. <laughs> okay. Uh, so anyway, response uh, M two versus M zero. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, certainly in the case of central banks, I'm, I'm a bit concerned that if we all just start using base money, then there'll be less financial depth and perhaps less uh, savings channeled into valuable investment projects. I'm less concerned about that with, with private alternatives um, because I suspect that we would get some, some banking sector developments to hold those funds. Um, and, uh, you know, you would essentially have banks that would be taking Libra uh, deposits. And uh, um, uh, so, so you could have some lending there. But I think that that's less likely to be the case when, when you're banking at the central bank. Yeah. Uh, oh. I don't want to like, uh, I want to give you a chance to speak if you want to respond on that one. 
Nothing? No. No. Uh, all right, sorry. Did George have something? Well, I was just going to say to, to uh, uh, expand on Will's point, if, if there are interest opportunities out there, and of course uh, <laughs> interest rates have been getting low, so this is uh, not something that can be taken for granted, and if regulators allow it, any base regime, any base money that doesn't itself yield interest is going to, uh, and, and, but is popular, is going to uh, give rise to attempts to create intermediaries using that base money and substitutes for that base money. So you, in principle, get yourself a banking system with Libra or a banking system with Bitcoin or a banking system with gold or any base money that becomes sufficiently widely used that it creates the temptation for people to intermediate with it. Yeah. Uh, just one or two more questions at the most uh, because we're getting late. Um, okay, I didn't see you over there, so... Yes. Um, Paul Tucker, um, I, I want George's um, points about sovereignty, I think, are really thought-provoking, so I want to link... I've got a question that links that point to what Steve was saying. Um, looking back on the 1970s when Germany maintained, was much closer to maintaining price stability than the United States. Do, do you wish that the United States had had a currency board system um, backed by the Deutsche Mark? O over the past 20 or so years, I think the euro um, has had much lower inflation on average than the US. Would you advocate... Do you, um, do you feel the same about that? If over the next 50 years the renminbi was to hold its value um, better than the dollar, would you advocate... Um, I'm, this is a serious question. I want, I, George's point about sovereignty, I think, is a massively important point. Would you, in those circumstances, advocate um, that the United States have a currency board system with a basket of the euro and the renminbi um, underneath. Thank you. Or, or is it only the rest of the world that should have um, have um, currency boards where the dollars underneath? Paul, I'm and, gonna, and is that is that is that in some way about exporting your sovereignty as as it was actually for Britain when lots of the former empire had sterling back currency boards? George, you want to start? Yeah, I'll start. Uh, my, my, my facetious answer is we'll, we'll consider giving up the dollar for the euro, but you have to make the euro uh, currency board uh, uh, back, uh, based on a currency board backed fully by Swiss francs. <laughs> but my, my, but my, my serious answer is it really is, goes back to what I was saying before. We're comparing, we're comparing imperfect systems. We're in a world of second best. And... It's probably not worth it to consider a currency of uh, adopting a corn, foreign currency in place of one's own currency if it's a matter of a couple percentage points of inflation. Even if, even if you have uh, a good, a very long record with that other currency, there are perfectly good reasons for not not uh, uh, rocking the boat uh, and for being optimistic that you could improve things at home. But if you have a basket case central bank, then it makes sense to consider it. So, I mean, I think Steve's uh, quite right. To, his number is high, 100, 
but uh, he knows more about how many basket cases are out there than any, uh, anybody else in this room, I venture to say. But I, don't, but I think there's a reason why it's 100 and not 200. And the reason is, it ain't, it's not a wise decision in some cases. And you might say, therefore, in those cases, monetary sovereignty makes sense. But I think the best, well, but I would rather say uh, what, what makes sense isn't the idea, it's not that it's sovereign money, it's that it's not bad money. That's what's the key. It's not the sovereign, the fact that it's your government's, it doesn't itself make it somehow better. And, uh, and it doesn't, and it, it doesn't, uh, and I don't think the argument of having money as a symbol of your government is a good argument for keeping it. The argument for keeping a money produced by your domestic government should be, we can't really do much better uh, by adopting anyone else's and maybe we can work on ours. And of course, if you adopt in other countries, you can't work on it. So that's an important consideration too. Um. I, unless you got something quick, or we, we need to wrap up because we're cutting into people's uh, uh, recreation Peter, time. Peter, I'll, I'll stay on the periphery with 100 and uh, 100. Go, go, go with that. Yeah. So uh, this has been a great session. I want to hear a big round of applause for our four panelists. <laughs>